we're going to have six sessions over the next two days, and it will be totally inadequate um, because worship is is all over the Bible. We, you know, we couldn't cover it all. You wouldn't want us. You wouldn't want me to cover it all. Um, but there's there's so much content here, and and worship is not something for you know a worship team, a worship leader, the choir. Worship is for every Christian, whether or not you enjoy music, enjoy singing. Um, you're a worshiper. And we're going to talk tomorrow from John 4. But in the middle of John 4, you have this evangelistic uh, outreach to the Samaritan woman, the bad Samaritan. And uh, Jesus is going to save her, talk about how we can satisfy her. And eventually, there's a revival that comes to that village of Gerizim, and people come out, and all these people are saved. And in the middle of that, Jesus makes this amazing statement. He says that uh, those who worship the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. And then he said, God is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. God is seeking worshipers. Uh, so worship is what we're, again, made for, what we're saved for. It's, it's at the heart of our identity. All right, every Christian is a worshiper. And the Bible is going to have descriptions of all creation worshiping. Okay, so we know that the, the angels were created to worship God. There are some that have been worshiping him since the moment of creation. They've been singing his praises, and, and they're not bored. They're not tired of it. It's just what they were made to do. It's a delight to them. It brings glory to him. Uh, scripture is going to talk about a time when the trees of the field are clapping their hands, and even creation is worshiping. Uh, not groaning like they are now, Romans 8, but rejoicing in their creator and in the, in the uh, rescue of fallen creation. And then when we get to heaven, we're going to be worshiping. So um, I want to start today by looking at several passages of Scripture that, uh, that are just examples of biblical worship. And uh, Pastor already started us in Psalm 95 and 96. Let's go ahead and go back to Psalm 96. Uh, there are several people in here training for ministry of some kind. Let me give you a tip. Read a lot of Scripture. Um, don't say, you know, I'm going to just read a couple verses to save time for my sermon. Okay, if, if somebody needs to cut time, instead of cutting Scripture, cut your sermon. Um, honestly, scripture, the scripture reading is the only part of the sermon that you are absolutely sure you're getting it right. So uh, read a lot of scripture. All right, we're going to start in Psalm 96, and then I want to take us to the New Testament, um, to a beautiful passage on worship, an example of worship there, and then we'll settle into Isaiah 6. And um, if we take extra time this morning, then I'll just shorten the next session. We'll be fine. By noon, I will get you out of here. This will not be a hostage situation. So uh, don't worry about the clock on this person, all right? Uh, Psalm 96, it's a beautiful uh, example of worship. Let's read it together. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. What a contrast. The idols were made by men, but our God, Jehovah, made the heavens and everything else. 
Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. I think verse 8 is kind of a centerpiece for worship. When we worship, we're not doing something noble that we should be congratulated for. Like, wow, we're amazing to worship God. No, we're, we're giving him his due. We don't worship because we're amazing. We worship because God is amazing. So, so we give the Lord the glory due his uh, name. Verse 9, I worship the Lord and the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. It's talking about him fixing this fallen world. And, and he's you know, getting rid of rebellion, getting rid of the curse. Um, verse 11 then, let the heavens rejoice and the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. For he cometh, he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Uh, sometimes when we talk about worship, we talk about personal worship, private worship. Um, that's your time with God. You actually should stop thinking of devotions. You know, devotions sounds like something on your to-do list to show how devoted you are. It's miserable, but it's the right thing to do. You know, you have private worship time with God. Uh, that's different. So you're, you're still praying, you're still reading the Bible, but it's personal worship. Then we come together for corporate worship, and uh, often that's on a Sunday, but that should be kind of the culmination of what you've been doing all week. Okay, it's not like, well, we'll worship, and then all, next Sunday we'll worship again. We're worshiping all the time. So there's private worship. There's corporate worship. There's really life as a worship, uh, your entire life. Even when you're not reading Scripture, Romans 12 is going to say, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, which is your reasonable, your spiritual act of worship. Okay, so... Now that we live in the New Testament, you didn't, how many of you brought a lamb to sacrifice today here at Cloverleaf Baptist Church? Uh, you didn't do that. You're not bringing a heave offering, a grain offering. You're the offering now. Okay, so we're not offering sacrifices. That's all finished because Jesus came and he, he fulfilled all of those ceremonial laws. So now our worship is either the fruit of our lips giving praise to God or our, our lives so everything you're doing when you're, when you're obeying as a Christian, when you're teaching Bible as a Christian, when you're studying as a Christian, um, when you're raising your children as a Christian, all of that is part of your worship because you're doing it in honor to the Lord. But then this goes beyond corporate worship to cosmic worship where even this fallen creation is going to be fixed and Jesus makes all things new and, you know, the culmination of the Bible, you have one big storyline in the Bible. And the culmination is, you began with creation, we're walking with God in the cool of the day, face-to-face -face in the Garden of Eden, enjoying Him. 
we sin, break everything, and then the rest of the Bible is trying to get us back to Genesis 1 and 2. So Jesus comes as the rescuer, and he is fulfilling prophecies, but what he's doing is fixing the mess we made. He's going to bring forgiveness of sins. He's going to change us so we can be reconciled to God. And um, I'm, I'm resisting the urge to preach that sermon, but you know we got kicked out of Eden, and there are cherubim that are put out there to, to keep us from entering. You know they have these they have these swords. They're like Gandalf. You shall not pass. And then, see, I'm preaching that sermon anyway. So you get to the tabernacle and the veil. You ever thought about the decorations in the tabernacle? What, what was sewn into the veil? Anybody remember? What's sewn into the veil? Not polka dots, you know, not stripes, not um, argyle, you know, whatever. What, what was it? Cherubim. Where'd that come from? What's an allusion back to Genesis 3? There's cherubim in the veil, and they're still symbolically saying, you can't come in here. You can't pass. Not, not even priests can come in. High priest once, you know, once a year on the Day of Atonement, but you can't come into the presence of God because sin separates us from God. The same thing is built into the temple. And then we get to the crucifixion of Jesus. He takes our sin... He takes God's wrath, so he's right in the crossfire. All of our sin is on him, which is terrible because he's sinless. All of God's wrath is poured on him instead of us, which is terrible. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His fellowship with God is broken. It's like he's kicked out of Eden. He's kicked out of the presence of God on our behalf. And he says, it's is what? Finished. And what happens to the veil? The veil is torn. The veil with the cherubim sewn into it is torn. And what does it signify? Sinners who have been exiled from God can now come. It's, it's like God saying to the cherubim, put your swords away, stand back, Christians can now come back into the sanctuary, kind of come back into Eden. We can have fellowship with God. Uh, Hebrews 10 is going to say we can come boldly into his presence because the new and living way that Christ has opened through the tearing of his flesh, that's, that's beautiful. That's a redemption of sinners, but we still don't have kind of a reconciliation of all things. We get to the end of Genesis, and Genesis 21 and 22 is a mirror of, excuse me, Revelation 21 and 22 is a mirror of Genesis 1 and 2, and, and we're back to paradise, and behold, I, I make all things new, there's, there's not going to be you know, tears and sorrow and sin, and then you get to the Revelation 22, I think it's verse 3 or 4, but it says, and there will be no more, anybody remember? There will be no more curse, which was the problem way back in Genesis 3. So, you know, when I was a kid growing up with um, Sunday school lessons, uh, flashcards, you know, Becca has the best flashcards. Uh, as a Bob Jones graduate, I just have to say, you guys did a really good job on that. Um, or flannel graph, you know, all the figures. Flannel graph confused me so much. 
they would put up Elijah, and I was like, last week that was Paul. I'm sure of it. You know, they would repurpose things. I didn't really, I, I understood Bible stories, but I understood them just compartmentalized. You know, for all I knew, Peter and Moses could have known each other. I, I just didn't know the sequence of Scripture. But we don't just have a collection and anthology of stories. We have one big story, creation, fall. The whole Bible is trying to fix the fall. And at the end of the Bible, the curse is removed. We're back in a new and improved Eden. That's what God's doing in the world. And all of it has to do with worship. Okay, so when this is telling us to sing and then telling creation to sing, it's actually a, kind of a big picture of what God is doing. So sinners need to be born again. And there's a sense in which this fallen world is going to be born again. He's going to make it new. Okay, so, so we, uh, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creature. And then there's going to be, for all of the world, cosmically, there's going to be a new creation. And um, what does that have to do with today's sermon? Totally not in my notes. Um, that was just a rabbit trail. That's, that's what you get from six weeks of me not preaching. So, uh, sermon one, check. Sermon two. Uh, let's turn to Revelation 4 and 5. I told you I was going to give you several examples of kind of worship services in Scripture, some of my favorites. You know Revelation 4 and 5. Revelation 4, we're, we're talking about God being worthy. Okay, we're going to get to Revelation 4.11. Thou art worthy, O Lord. The whole idea of the English word worship is ascribing worth. It's worthship. Okay, it means that, we're, that God is worthy, deserving. We saw that from Psalm 96, give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. He's worthy of praise. Revelation 4 is ascribing praise to God, basically God the Father. Revelation 5 is giving praise to God the Son, to the Lamb. And I want us to read this and kind of compare Psalm 96 to this, and then finally we're going to settle into Isaiah 6. But let's go ahead and read uh, both passages. Revelation 4, this, this is amazing. You know, don't get so familiar with this that it doesn't cause you to, to wonder a little bit. Okay, just amazing what's happening in heaven. So, Revelation 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. The first voice, which I heard, was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. He that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow around the throne, in sight like unto an emerald, and round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, they had on their heads crowns of gold, and out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. There were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. In the midst of the throne and around the throne were 
four beasts full of eyes before and behind. The first beast was like a lion, the second beast like a calf, third beast had a face as a man, the fourth beast was a flying was like a flying eagle. These are these are angelic beings. Takes us back to the book of Ezekiel. It's trying to describe the indescribable. But these are these awesome angelic beings. Verse 8, the four beasts, each of them had six wings about him. They were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when these beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders, uh, representation of, of humanity, I think, uh, probably Old Testament and New Testament, like we see in the New Jerusalem. Uh, this is the redeemed. Um, the elders, where, where was I? Verse 10. Uh, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So God is worthy of worship because he's the creator. Chapter 4. Now we get to chapter 5. We're going to see similar worship, but now it's focused on the lamb, on the son. And now it's focused not on him as the creator, but on him as the savior. And you're going to have much of the same terminology used. uh, Chapter 5. So on the right hand of him that sat on the throne, a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven or in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book. Neither to look thereon. It seems so strange. What's it talking about? This the scroll is like the title, the title deed of the universe. You know, who is worthy to open the scroll? Now, what's gonna happen when when the scroll is opened, when when the seals are broken, what's gonna happen? The rest of Revelation, you know, a seal is broken and there's cataclysmic judgment. So what would what's being discussed is Who is worthy to take ownership of the universe and to bring the judgment necessary to to fix things? And the rest of the book is going to be kind of a bloody mess. Have you ever heard people say that, you know, in the Old Testament, God was a God of judgment. In the New Testament, he's a God of grace. that, That is such bad thinking. God never changes. In the Old Testament, God was gracious. And if you think God isn't a God of judgment in the New Testament, you haven't read the book of Revelation. You know, the, what's going to happen in Revelation makes Sodom and Gomorrah look like nothing. Okay, but what we want is for someone to come and own the world and fix it. And when there's nobody coming, John is weeping. Like, when is this finally going to be over? So... When John gets to the end of the book and he says, even so, Lord Jesus, come, 
Lord, come quickly. When, when we pray, Lord, come quickly, we're actually praying for him to come and open the seals and, and bring catastrophe in order to bring, you know, an ultimate redemption and to fix everything. So, so he's waiting, and, you know, who can do this? Verse 6, I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, in the, in the midst, that's significant, in the midst of the elders, so kind of the center of the circle, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Wow. Jesus is given the same uh, descriptions and attributes as the Father. That's significant because he's God. So he has all of this power. Spirits of God sent in all the earth, all the earth verse 7. And he came and took the book, the scroll, out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy, but not because of creation. He says, this time it says, Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and has redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests. We shall reign on the earth. I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, such as are in the sea, again, it's talking about the created order, cosmic worship like Psalm 96. Even the things in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. The four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. I mean, these are kind of the high watermarks of Scripture. These are amazing passages. Worship. And we're worshiping God for making us. We're worshiping God for saving us. We're ascribing to him the glory that is his due. You know, there's other passages in chapter 7. We, we could get later in the book where we have the hallelujah chorus. You know, uh, the kingdom of our, uh, the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You have all this worship that's happening in the book of Revelation. Let me give you just another rabbit trail real fast. Stop being afraid of the book of Revelation. I had a lady in church say, that's kind of a sweaty palms book. I don't really like that book. It's about Jesus. Now, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of strange things in there. It's about Jesus, though. It's about him rescuing the planet. It's about, about him judging the wicked, making all things new. Revelation is from and about Jesus. And it should be a book that you really are delighted by, not afraid of. You know, don't, don't overcomplicate it. I used an illustration uh, with the people I pastored. Um, the Wizard of Oz. 
What's the Wizard of Oz about? Oh, talking trees, flying monkeys, wicked witches, tornadoes. No, what's, what's it about? It's about Dorothy. Everybody else is just an extra. You know, the, the story's about Dorothy and, and Toto. We'll, we'll, get, we'll say Dorothy and Toto, but she's trying to get home, and there's all kinds of lessons. But, but all the monkeys, you know, it's scary, but that's not the focus. The book of Revelation isn't about the dragon, the beast, the false prophets, cataclysmic judgment. It's about Jesus. And everybody else is just kind of an extra uh, that, that fills in the details. But Revelation is about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus in that sense. And it's really about worship. It's glorious, beautiful. Hallelujah. Now, we're finally getting to the text of the message, Isaiah chapter 6. There's nothing worse than sitting in church. The pastor has been waxing on for half an hour or so, and then he says, now let's get to our text. And you just think, oh, no, <laughs> somebody help. Uh, Isaiah 6, so similar to the passages where he read. And then together, just very quickly, we're going to make some observations from this, okay? The, the word itself has kind of already done the work, and now we can just draw some conclusions. Isaiah 6, another amazing passage of Scripture. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. As a kid, you can't imagine what was going through my mind. You know, I had a toy train, I'm picturing like, is it, wow, that must be the most amazing track. That, not that, okay? We'll talk about it. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings, with twain, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he did fly. One cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, that is Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of battles. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs off the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. Then I said, and then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. 
but yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, it shall be eaten as a tell tree, as an oak, <clears throat> whose substance is in them, and they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. All right, it starts with such beauty, in the end you kind of get confused, but all of it is significant. We just read four beautiful descriptions of ideal worship, heavenly worship. Um, Psalm 96 is an invitation to worship on earth. But Revelation 4 and 5 and Isaiah 6 are giving us a picture of worship in heaven. And it's kind of an illustration of what our worship on earth should be like. This is what ideal worship is about. From all these passages, I want to draw just some quick lessons. The first session we're describing on worship, the first one, we're just talking about the object of worship. The object of worship. What do we mean by that? We're talking about God. Worship is about God. You know, there, there are people, they love the worship experience. They love singing in church. And, you know, they might sing holding a hymnal. They might be very staid, or, or they, they might be, you know, you see pictures of people that are just enthralled, and, and I'm not offended by that. But I think there's some people, they love worship more than they love God. You know, the experience of worship. And, and it can be the people that are just, you know, overwhelmed with emotion and, and crying, or it can be, you know, somebody that just really enjoys singing in choir but it's possible for us to love the event more than we love the person. We used to describe people, um, I was probably among them, but in junior high, you know, did you know people um, when you were young, they were dating this person, and as soon as they weren't dating that person, they were dating this person, and that person, and this person. And we used to describe that person, she's just in love with love. You know, he's in love with love. He's, he's afraid not to have a girlfriend at any given moment. It's just going like a butterfly from one flower to the next. Well, we don't want to be worshiping worship. And even sometimes in our songs, there are worship songs that almost sound self-congratulatory. I'm not going to be picking on worship songs, new or old. But, you know, when we're singing, there's a modern worship song called Here I Am to Worship. I it's not terrible, but the thrust of it is, you know, here I am to worship, here I am to bow down, here I am to say that you are my God. So far, I've, I've kind of congratulated myself for worshiping. Now, then it changes. You're altogether lovely, altogether holy, altogether wonderful for me. That, it's fine. But at some point, you know, worship is not about us, the worshiper, as much as it is about God. Yeah, when, you, when you read the four passages we read, you, you have these people, but the entire alignment in heaven is circular, and everybody's looking to the throne. Here, you know, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. I mean, the angels were there, but I was looking at God. If we don't get this part right, everything else we're going to talk about all weekend is, is going to be, you know, pointless. The focus of worship is God. 
God is amazing. One of the things that we're not good at is wonder, awe, reverence. You know, where we read something about God, we think about it, and we're like, ah, I, I have no words. I, I scarce can take it in, the hymn writer would say. You know, to think that the God of creation would give his son to die for us. I just, wow, it's amazing. We're not awed by God. We're not amazed by it. We're, we're not moved. We, we don't think in those terms. You know, we, we have our doctrinal statements. We have our hymns that we sing. We, you know, the way you're supposed to dress in church. Um, and, you know, one way on Saturday is okay. This is okay on Saturday. Tomorrow I better not, you know. And we, we kind of have all these written or unwritten rules, but we're not just amazed by God. These passages are amazing. And let me just give you some quick principles. I want you to help me tease them out real fast. I have four things that I want us to observe from Isaiah 6, but generally from all these passages. First is this, true worship is God-exalting. True, true worship is God-exalting. It's about God. Now, when we, when we ascribe to the Lord glory and strength and ascribe to Him, give to Him the glory to His, to, to his name, you know, we're, we're not giving Him anything He doesn't possess, but we're just kind of reminding each other. He's holy, holy, holy. He, he's unrivaled. There's nobody like him. Do you know what the word holy means? What does the word holy mean? Talk to me. I mean, we just read holy, holy, holy is the Lord. What's it mean? Separate. Good. Holy means separate. What is God separate from? Sin. Okay. I've always thought of holiness kind of as purity. He's separate from sin. He's, he's not sinful. He's, but holiness is bigger than that. God is separate or set apart from everything. He's in his own category. You know, I used to have a teacher. He would say the holiness of God means that he is entirely other. That, that's, you know, it sounds deep. What's that mean? He's just in a category by himself. There, there's no rival for him. There's, there's no equal. And he is set apart from sin, but he's so amazing. You know, we, we see him here, and, and even the language is difficult. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, and part of that is he's just dating when, when this vision happened. But part of it is, you know, King Uzziah was a pretty good king. Then he messed up and got leprosy, but he was pretty good. The next king was worse. The next king was terrible. But the earthly king died. But then he says, woe is me. I am undone because mine eyes have seen who? The king. I mean, the capital K king. Let, let, me, let me mess with you a little bit, because it's 2022. The last few years have been so disheartening. I see Christians who are evangelists for no masks, 
you know, for the danger of vaccines. Raise your hand if you... No, I'm joking. Don't do that. <laughs> but I'm on Facebook, and there are Christians that are... They're evangelists. They're, they're like preaching all the time that masks are terrible or that masks are, you know, the only way. Vaccines will kill you. No, vaccines will save you. And, and as a pastor... I, Here I am in Atlanta. We have people in our church that have PhDs and work for the CDC. And they're saying, be really careful. And then we have people that are like, that is ridiculous, liberal nonsense, mainstream media, you know, and they made it all up to defeat Trump. And, you know, wherever you are on the spectrum, and somebody is probably on either side of that, but Christians are so passionate about that. Or I mentioned President Trump. They're so passionate about President Trump and politics, or they're so opinionated about the racial controversies we've had. You know, when, when people, when Black Lives Matter is rioting, that's terrible. But when, when people are storming the Capitol, that is patriotism. And sometimes I just want to tell people, like, you know, actually, the rioting in cities was terrible, and the rioting at the Capitol was terrible. Just, just be consistent. You know, set your ide- ideology aside. Try to be objective and say, this world's kind of a mess, and Christians are so passionate about all that stuff. You know, see, I didn't make you mad when I talked about Georgia football. Now I might be making you mad, right? It, it's been disheartening to see Christians who are so obsessed with this stuff. I, I had a church member send me a picture of Jesus and Donald Trump walking together, and Jesus was actually behind Donald Trump, following, you know, and I, I'm not trying to urge you to, you know, become more or less conservative in your politics, but there are people that care a lot more about the earthly king than they do about the king. And Isaiah says, Uzziah was a pretty good king. He died. But I got my eyes on the king, the one on the throne. He will never die. He will never change. He is awesome. And he's described as the king, the Lord of hosts, the the God of battles, of armies. He's, He's high and lifted up. He's the Lord, the word is Adonai, he's the master. He's looking at him and he says, his train filled the temple. Now, now here's the kicker. He says, I saw the Lord. Careful when you answer this. What does God look like? What does God look like? Yes. But it's, but it's tricky because... He's spirit. He's he's spirit. He's he's not physical. Yeah, we we often use the picture of light, but but we're using pictures sometimes because it's indescribable. And, you know, he's in the temple, but he's going to say elsewhere that that no temple can contain him, that the heavens can't contain him. Here his train fills the temple. Do you know what his train is talking about? What is his train? It's not a choo-choo train. What's the train? 
All right, and, and you think, when do we talk about a train? A wedding. A wedding dress can have a long train. It's, it's like a robe. It's like a garment. And, you know, um, you, think about, you think about the wedding of, like, um, Lady Diana. You know, and she's, she's walking down, and she's, she's got this train that is impossibly long. I remember the first time my daughters saw The Sound of Music, and when they do that wedding scene, and, you know, the former nun is now walking down, she, my daughter was probably five, my oldest one. She's like, there she goes, there she goes, and she was so excited. And I was like, just come on, move on, let's, you know, get to the Nazis. Just joking. <laughs> Um, but she was so excited, and the train is, is part of her glory, her majesty. So, so he's on the temple, his garment, and you understand, his, all this is kind of figurative, because the Psalms are going to say, he, like, the, the, the stars are his garment, you know. It, but this is just trying to describe for us how awesome he is. And, and it's shaking, and there's smoke, and... He's amazing. And he is holy, holy, holy. Means he's separate from everything. So true worship is God exalting. I'll be quicker on the second one. Point number two is true worship is self-effacing. Self-effacing. E-F-F-A-C-I-N-G. Self-effacing. Like if somebody has self-effacing humor, they make fun of themselves. You're exalting God and humbling you. So you see God, and what was Isaiah's response to seeing God in all of his glory? Woe is me, like I'm in trouble. I am aware of how unclean I am. You know, do you have other examples of that in Scripture? Ezekiel sees the Lord and he falls down like a dead man. John, Jesus' best friend, John sees him in Revelation 1 and he falls down like he's dead. The three disciples see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and that, that idea of a ball of shining light, when, when Jesus is seen at the Mount of Transfiguration, he's shining like the sun. They're so terrified they fall on their face. You know, sometimes people say like, oh, if I could just see, see Jesus, I'd run up and give him a hug. If you saw Jesus, you would be face down horrified, you know, terrified. And then he would come and he'd say, hey, get up. It's, it's okay. You know, it's me. He's that great. True worship is self-humiliating or self-effacing. And back to the idea of holiness, you said that God is separate from sin, and He is. So let me ask you a question. It makes sense that Isaiah fell down. Woe is me, I'm undone because I'm a sinner. Okay, but the seraphim, the seraphim are covering their feet and covering their eyes they're humble before God. And let me ask you a question. Are seraphim sinners? No. Seraphim haven't done anything wrong. Yeah, I mean, the ones that have fell with Lucifer. They're humbled before God because it's not only sin that separates us from God. It's His deity that separates us from God. I mean, there is a chasm between us and God that is so vast, not only because we're sinners, but because we're creatures. So 
the sinless angels are amazed by God and can't even look at him. And they sing his praises and, and are ready to serve him. The, the believer is overwhelmed even more because he's also a sinner. And, and God is in his own category. So worship exalts God and, and suppresses the sinner. There's no room for pride when it comes to worship. True worship actually you know, makes you say um, with a hymn writer you know, that, that I am a worm. I am a wretch. I, I deserve nothing but God's wrath. Now, now hear me on this. This is, this is a fundamental church. You know, do you guys use the terminology of fundamental? We're fundamentalists. I mean, that, that's who we are. And, you know, we started to use other terms because um, there's so much baggage with that one. But, but we're very conservative. Separatists. It's possible for us to be so proud of how conservative we are. And, and we think God is honored by that. I heard a professor of mine, I love the guy, uh, it was a professor, Bob Jones. He preached a message on the holiness of God. And the whole time I was like, amen, amen, amen. He's exalting God for his, he's in his own categories. Unlike anybody, he's so awesome. He's deserving of glory and honor and he has all power. And then he gets to the end of the sermon to kind of set the hook you know, the last thing to remember. And he says to a group of pastors, and that is where men like John MacArthur go off the rails. They just don't understand the holiness of God. You know, fundamentalists understand the holiness of God. Evangelicals don't understand the holiness of God. And I wanted to, I wanted to scream. If studying God in Isaiah 6 ends with us congratulating ourselves, we've totally missed it. You know, Isaiah, I mean, Isaiah wasn't the one doing all the wicked things described in the book of Isaiah, but he still was on his face before the Lord, just absolutely overwhelmed by how sinful he was. Okay, so if studying God makes you proud of your conservatism, you're missing it. Studying God should, should humiliate you and say, now, God, I, I want to understand your holiness, but I'm not patting myself on the back. I am ripping my clothes and mourning in and, and dust and ashes because you're so awesome, and I'm so not. You know, you pray and you say, God, you are loving, and I'm so selfish. You are all wise, and I'm so foolish. You're holy, and I'm small. You're holy, and I'm sinful. God, have mercy on me. You know, there's, there's no room in worship to say, well, you know, we get this and other people, blah, 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 blah. Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men, like blah, blah, blah. That's, that's the Pharisee, and he's not the hero in Luke 18, right? He's the villain. He's the guy in trouble. We come to God and we don't congratulate ourselves. We don't say, well, you know, if God lived in Mobile, how do you say Mobile? Mobile? I got it. All right. 
I told somebody I was going to Mobile. He says, no, you're not. <laughs> if God lived in Mobile, he would certainly attend Cloverleaf Baptist Church. Uh, careful. <laughs> Sometimes we're so proud of our conservatism. And we see God, how great he is. And we should just be on our face. He's awesome. And we're not. Now, we're nothing. You know, that, that's the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy. He goes through this list of sins that includes, you know, kidnapping and murder and homosexuality. And then he says, a few sentences later, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, finish it with me, of whom I am chief. Yeah, but Paul, you just talked about some really bad people. And he still says, I'm still the worst sinner I know. Okay, again, rather than the church just shouting at society how terrible they are, when we see God in his glory, then, then we will be humbled. And, and humility comes not from comparing yourself with other people, but from comparing yourself with God. You compare yourself with God, you're like, I am nothing. Thank God for grace. Thank God for mercy. So true worship is God-exalting, self-effacing, and life-changing. It is life-changing. So, and, and we're going to get into this in other sessions. So Isaiah, though, it, he has this encounter with God, and he's changed. How has he changed? You know, he doesn't just fall down and say, woe is me. Then what happens? There's this coal that comes, touches his lips, and, and he's purged. He's, he's forgiven. He's, he's changed. And, you, you know, whatever's happening there, he, he is being purified. And then he says, Lord, here am I, send me. You know, so he doesn't leave the way he came in. He doesn't leave the same person uh, that he arrived as. And there's a sense that when you come to church, you worship. If you go out exactly the same person, then we've missed something. It ought to be affecting you, not just with a momentary tear or sigh or conviction, then you forget it. You should be altered. You should be changed by it, and you will be. I think we're studying that in Sunday school tomorrow. And then the last thing I'll say is true worship. It's God-exalting, self-effacing. We see it in Isaiah 6, but we're seeing the same thing in Revelation 4 and 5. It is life-changing. And then it is gospel-centered. Uh, if somebody wants to help me find an ING word instead of centered, that would be great. You know, gospel preaching, gospel. Uh. Um, preachers, alliteration is way overrated. You know, I'm going to tell you the five P's of prayer. It's powerful, it's persistent, it's preposterous. Don't do that. That is not how you preach. Just explain the text. Um, but if you can come up with an ING word like that, that would help me because they at least ought to be consistent. God-exalting, self-effacing, life-changing, and gospel-centered. Just kind of, eh. What do I mean by that? It's the last part. Is whatever's happening to Isaiah when his sins are purged, 
You understand, there is no heavenly coal that can take your sins away. What, what takes your sins away? Anybody? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There, there is kind of a depiction here of, you know, there, there's something from the, the altar. And, and for the Christian, the altar now is the cross. It's like a wooden altar. It's, it's the work of Christ that takes away our sin. And then um, just for fun, because the Bible is fun. Turn fast to John 12. Jesus, in John 12, has just done the triumphal entry. So it's just the last week of his life before his crucifixion. He has just again predicted his death. Now, John 12, 37. John 12, 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Okay, that's, that's John 1, 11. He came into his own, his own received him not. They didn't believe in spite of his miracles. In order that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. He's talking about their stubbornness, their blindness from Isaiah 6, verse 41. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Who is John 12 talking about? John 12 is talking about Jesus. And Isaiah said that when he saw Jesus and spoke of him. That's amazing. So when we see the Lord high and lifted up, when he's exalted as holy, 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 he's the Lord of hosts, he's the king, then Isaiah says, or then, then John says, Isaiah was talking about Jesus. Which, if you made yourself into a Jew in your mind, sounds almost blasphemous. You see that sweaty 33-year-old man? And he's pretty much homeless, doesn't have a place to live, he gets hungry. He sleeps. He thirsts. That guy? He's in Isaiah 6, high and lifted up. And you can understand why the Jews would have a hard time with that. Because they're, they're told, you know, they're taught against idolatry. And then they're told that this man in their midst is Jehovah. And it, it was a lot to comprehend. They should have understood because of prediction of Scripture. But, but Isaiah 6 isn't just giving us kind of an obscure Old Testament view of God in, in general, John 12 says that's God. So just for fun, Jehovah's Witnesses think that they're getting away with something when they alter John 1.1 and like, oh, no, how are we going to prove the deity of Jesus without John 1.1? The whole gospel of John shows the deity of Jesus, including John 12.40 and 41. 
our worship is gospel-centered. And so, the only way sinners like Isaiah can be in the presence of God is if their sins are taken away by the mercy of God. The only way we can come to the object of our worship is if we have been washed from our sins by the Savior. We come in Jesus' name. Every, everything we do, we come in Jesus' name. You understand that, right? I actually start my prayers. And um, I, I start my prayers in Jesus' name instead of ending them in Jesus' name. You know, I used to say as a kid, you know, in Jesus' name, amen. I didn't even know what I was saying. Just in Jesus' name, amen. Signing off, 10-4, over and out. Sincerely, Chris, in Jesus' name. No, to pray in Jesus' name means I claim no right to come to you except that I come in Jesus' name. I'm claiming his privilege. You know, his name is on the check, not mine. So I start my prayer in Jesus' name. At the end of my prayer, I might just get to the end of the prayer and say, amen. Don't be shocked. Don't be offended. But to come in Jesus' name means, God, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve for you to listen to me. But I have Jesus' name and Jesus' blood and Jesus' righteousness. So thank you for hearing me in spite of me because of Jesus. And, and we come through Jesus all the time. So, so worship is, is centered on the gospel. If we don't have the gospel, we can't worship this God. Right? That was a lot. I, I admit, you just heard four sermons. And uh, most of you are still breathing. You have a pulse. But go...